Well, I want to thank you guys before we dive in uh, for hanging with me over the past two weeks as we have been uh, walking through the tragic story of Judas Iscariot. It's not always the funnest part of going through one of the Gospels to talk about that. Uh, and we walked through some pretty heavy themes together, things like spiritual betrayal, what it means to fall away from the faith. We talked about the difference between being authentically in Christ versus faking the presence of spiritual fruit. We even touched on demon possession. But as I shared with you over the last couple of weeks, I think the warning about how the story of Judas ends is timely and important for the church today because of how active we see the enemy right now in our world, the way we're seeing so much deconstruction of faith, so many people falling away. The way that's taking place right now, the story of Judas becomes very, very timely. Frankly, I expect it to continue and maybe even get worse in the coming years. So as I shared last week, we ought not be surprised by it. The Bible predicts it. Church history is full of it, and we're seeing it in our age. Now, we left off in our story last week at the disciples' table in that upper room with Jesus turning to Judas, who was on his left-hand side, and saying to him, what you do, do quickly. And then John wrapped up with this ominous statement. He said, and Judas went out, and it was what? It was night. So the picture we get as we come out of that story is Judas is now winding his way through the narrow streets of Jerusalem. He is headed towards the Temple Mount where his co-conspirators, the chief priests of Israel, were likely holed up. And John, still sitting at the table next to Jesus on his right-hand side, he must have been sitting there utterly stunned. Judas? The guy we've been trusting for three years to handle the money? Judas is the betrayer? I did not see that coming, he must have thought. And while he's trying to process all this, right, he hears Jesus say this, now is the Son of Man glorified. And here's what Jesus means by that. It's Judas's leaving that was the final step needed to start the process of the death of the Son of Man. The final dominoes which needed to fall had now begun to be set in motion. And now Jesus, alone with his true disciples, the, uh, the 11, for just a little while longer, is now freed up to have one last very important conversation before he is taken away. And it's a conversation that is filled with remarkable contrast. Think about this. On the one hand, you have so much darkness in this story. You've got spiritual betrayal, the, the very presence of Satan in that room in Judas. Judas walking out into the night. And there's no question that over the next couple of hours, it's only going to get darker. And yet, on the other hand, John is going to speak about God's glory in the midst of that darkness. We're going to see how Jesus shines through that darkness. And how God the Father shines gloriously in him in the midst of this darkest hour. So what we're going to study over the next few months, and I'll just put this on the screen so that you can see it. There it is. What we're going to study over the next few months is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And it runs from today's verse, the beginning of today's uh, passage, chapter 13, verse 31, all the way through chapter 17. And it includes some of the richest material in all of John's gospel, some of our, our favorite verses that we've memorized as kids. Some of the, you know, the greatest promises given to us by the Lord is in this particular section. And it is all taking place within a period of hours on the night that Jesus is betrayed. And then once we get to chapter 17, that takes us straight to the Garden of Gethsemane 
and his arrest. So the next few months are going to be very, very rich. It's perfect. Fall is starting. And so make plans to be here because this is such an important section of the gospel. Now, in preparation for today's passage, I'm going to do something I don't usually do. You know how normally I don't, I don't force you guys to flip around in your Bibles a whole lot. I like to stick to the one text and have you just, just, just sit in it. But today, I want you to grab your Bibles. We're going to go to a book other than the book of John. It's 1 John. Ha! Ha ha ha! Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. All right, you can probably guess why we're going here, right? Same author, same guy who was an eyewitness to this scene in the upper room. But as we go to 1 John, I want you to make sure you keep the historical context in mind. Think back now to that night in the upper room when Jesus is betrayed. John is a very young man, probably in his mid-20s at that point, the youngest of all the disciples. As we open up 1 John, he's likely in his mid-80s now. Think about that, his mid-80s. He is, by a wide margin, the only one of the 11 still alive. And according to pretty reliable church tradition, he has been overseeing the churches in Western Asia Minor for some 25 years now, situated mainly in the city of Ephesus. So I'm just going to read a, a, a few passages. We're going to survey this really quickly, a few passages. But listen carefully to the language as we go along. Go to chapter 2, verse 7. We're going we're to move quickly through here, so just follow with me. I'm reading from the Spurgeon CSB, the same Bible the Herrera's got this morning. Amen and amen. All right, chapter 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you've had from the beginning. Drop down to verse 9. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. Chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Drop down to verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. Drop down to verse 16. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Drop down to verse 23 in chapter 3. Now this is his command that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he commanded us. Go over to chapter 4, verse 7. This was our call to worship from this morning. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, that not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. Drop down to the second half of verse 16 of chapter 4. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. Drop down to verse 19. 
We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and it hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person, for the, the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Are you catching a theme here? Chapter 5, verse 1, last one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Now, go back again to chapter 2. I've got, I've got seven more snippets to read, but listen to the common phraseology in this. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. Chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Chapter 2, verse 28. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Chapter 3, verse 7, children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. Chapter 3, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Chapter 4, verse 4, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And then turn over to the very last verse. In John's letter, chapter 5, verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. So, love, love, and more love. Did you hear it? The love of God in Christ and his command that we ought to love one another in the body of Christ. And then seven times he uses this beautiful little phrase, little children. Now, I know I've told this story before, but it's worth repeating on this day. There's an ancient tradition that's been passed down in the church from Clement of Alexandria to Jerome in the 4th century. And it's said that John, in the very last months of his life, was so old and so frail, he lived in Ephesus, that the, the elders of the church would have to carry him into the worship service in Ephesus because he couldn't walk. And because he was John, I mean, could you imagine... I'm in the church with John. Can imagine. Because he's John, and he's this old man who literally walked with the Lord, they would always give him an opportunity to speak. And every time John had a chance to speak, he only said one thing. Little children love one another. That's it. That's all he would say. And then one day, a young man got so frustrated with this, as we probably all would, and, and he said, Teacher, why do you always say this? And according to Jerome, this is how he responded. John said, because it is the Lord's command, and if only this one thing is done, it is enough. It is enough. So the question is, how did John acquire such a passion for the love of God and for this command for believers to love one another? Now let's go to John chapter 13. We're going to see why. John chapter 13. Did you have your ribbon in there already? Were you saving your spot? You guys are good. Verse 31. Okay, so you got, this, you got the context now. 
We've, we've seen old John in his 80s, still talking about the love of God and the command to love each other. Now we're going back to when he's in his mid-20s in that upper room. Verse 31, Therefore, when he, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Uh, Look at verse 33. Little children. Little children, Jesus says, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I've said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you what? Love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love, love, and more love. And the command that we ought to love one another. Here's what I gather from this. How profound this teaching from Jesus must have been in John's life. How much this night must have affected him. No other New Testament writer stresses love as much as John does. And of all the New Testament writers, he's the only one that adopts this phrase, little children. There's no doubt in my mind, even as an old man, 60 years later, John could still see Jesus speaking these words in his mind's eye. He could still hear his voice. And John must have been deeply impacted and deeply shaped by the events that took place in that upper room that night, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. So much so that 60 years later, it is still the foremost thing in his mind. Now let's go back to the beginning of the passage and let's try to work our way through this. Not a lot of verses today, but some really important ones. Verse 31, Therefore, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Here we go again, repetition, right? When we see repetition in Scripture, it means pay attention. In just two verses, we have five references to this very just single theme, glorified, 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 glorified. Does Jesus make his point? I hope so. Jesus does not want his disciples that night or us 2,000 years later to be fooled by appearances. The unbelieving world looks at the cross and they don't see glory at all. They see humiliation and shame and disgrace. And you can understand why. If you know anything about crucifixion under the cruelty of the Romans, there was no worse way to die. To be stripped, to be flogged, to be nailed to a splintery cross and then left to hang there sometimes for days, suffering a slow and agonizing death of suffocation. And you have to know from the Romans' point of view, it was all intentional. It had a design to it. Your death would become a public spectacle. You'd be crucified normally along a road so that everybody that walked by looked at you hanging there dying slowly, and that would be a warning to any would-be criminal or revolutionary. This is an awful way to go. And so the question is asked, where's the glory in that? Well, how many times have we said in this preaching series, God's ways are not man's ways, and man's ways are not God's ways. And God had a plan in mind that would not only confound the Romans, it would confound the religious authorities of Israel, it would even confound Satan himself. Because the Mosaic law had said it cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, but it was God's plan that his son would become a curse for us. And that by, by becoming that curse, 
he would redeem us from the curse of the law. So God is going to flip all that over on its head. That means Jesus, knowing what's about to be accomplished on the cross, even though he knows he has to endure all of this pain, all the suffering, all the humiliation, he can speak of the cross in terms of its glory because he knows what's about to happen. He knows that he will lead many sons and daughters to glory through the cross. And in the son's obedience, the father would be glorified. You see in this verse how Jesus intertwines the glory that he has in himself with the glory of the father, right? How many times have we seen this? This this oneness between father and son, this union that exists, this unbreakable love. And here their glory is intertwined together. So catch this, the brightest display of God's glory is going to take place in the darkest hour possible. He's going to shine through that darkness. But never forget, this series of events that was about to take place between Friday and Sunday had been planned by God before the foundations of the world were even laid. God had a plan for this. He was firmly in control of all of it. Jesus is no victim here. God is in control of all of it. And really, if you think about it, Satan has no chance to win. Now, what were the disciples thinking when they heard Jesus say that? So Jesus has talked about betrayal in a general sense, and now we talked about this coming glory. My guess is they were puzzled about what's going on. Again, how many people in that room that night knew that Judas was the betrayer? Only Jesus and John. That's it, right? The rest have only heard Jesus talk about betrayal in a general sense, and then this statement about being glorified. So what had begun is this super happy celebration of the Passover feast has turned very dark, right? And it's about to become more and more troubling. Look at verse 33. Jesus is really going to shake up his friends now. Verse 33. Little children, he says, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I have said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now here's really what shakes the disciples here. Look at that little phrase in the middle of the verse, as I said to the Jews. Now you might remember this a few chapters back. Jesus had talked to this crowd of hostile Jews and he had said, I'm going to a place that you cannot find me. You, will not, you might seek me, but you will never find me. And, and so each time that Jesus did this, he always took his guys with him. And they would retreat to some remote place and sort of hide away as the threats in Jerusalem grew against them. And they would just hide away for a while and they would minister to each other. But his guys always went with him, but not this time. This time, Jesus says, I have to do this alone. Guys, where I'm going now, you can't follow. Okay, slip your disciples' sandals on your feet. How do you feel in that moment? This would have been an emotional and spiritual earthquake for these guys. What do you mean we can't follow? Lord, wherever you go, we've gone. I don't get it. I mean, they would have been overwhelmed and confused. Everywhere you've gone, we go. That's the way it's always been. And so they're confused here. But the fact is, this time was different, right? They had shared this great public ministry together for three years. And they were inseparable as a team. But that was during what we call a spiritual daytime period. Now the night has come. The darkness of satanic influence has come. It's a dark night, and Judas had already walked into it, and in this particular work, Jesus has to go alone. There's just, there's no other option, because only the Son of God can overcome the darkness by allowing himself to be enveloped by the darkness. 
Only the Son of God could abolish death by giving himself up to death. Only the Son of God could disarm Satan by surrendering to Satan's servants. The 11 couldn't do that. The weight is just too heavy, right? The spiritual battle is too heavy for, for these 11. It would have been too heavy for any of us here today. And in fact, we know all 11 are about to fail miserably. So we can test it. It's too much for them. They're all going to fail. Not just Peter, right? Peter's going to fail really spectacularly, but they're all going to fail. They're all going to flee for their lives. And this too is predicted. John doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us that after Judas left that night, he warned them. Here's what Jesus said. You will all fall away because of me this night. All of you. For it is written, and he quotes from Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Even that had been predicted by God. So Jesus is going to have to go alone in this, in his darkest hour. And again, imagine, Jesus knows what's coming. All of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the humiliation of the cross. Imagine the spiritual weight that Jesus is feeling in this moment. Knowing he's going to be alone physically. His guys are not going to be with him. He'll have his father in heaven, but his guys will not be with him. Now look again at how the master addresses his friends here in verse 33. Remember, there were many things that night he could have scolded them about. They're a mess, aren't they? We've looked at this carefully. Remember, what were they, what were they doing when they were walked into the room that night? They were debating about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Knuckleheads. And then they hadn't even thought about washing each other's feet. They walked right past the wash basin. And Peter even tried to stop Jesus from washing his feet. They're not grasping anything that Jesus is even talking about this night. And yet, in spite of their weakness, look at the tenderness that Jesus uses towards them. Little children, he calls them. He speaks to them like a father figure, right? Knowing how desperate they are for his help, for his protection. This is a moment of great warmth and intimacy from the master to his, his students. It reminded me as I was studying this, I remember way back in the day when I was in the corporate world and, and my daughter Chandler was very young, I would, I'd go away for a few days on a business trip. And uh, I remember she'd walk me to the door and I would bend down and try to get on her eye level and look her square in the eye. And I'd say, sweetie, I gotta go, gotta go away for a while. And I'm gonna miss you, but you'll see daddy again soon. And I had to do that every time I went away on a trip and then I had to be faithful to, to come back home, right? And to embrace her and say, see, Daddy was faithful. Well, that's the type of moment we're getting here. Jesus says, I only have a short time left with you. But as we go through the rest of this discourse, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to give his disciples these amazing promises about his faithfulness. He's going to say things like, don't be afraid. You will see me again. In fact, I am going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you will be also. So those promises are coming as we get further into the discourse. But this is a moment of intimacy here between Jesus and his guys. It's hard. It's heavy. There's darkness, but there's glory as well. But he says, I've got to do this alone. Okay, let's get to what I think is really the big idea of the passage. Look at verse 34. Jesus has just dropped this bombshell that he's going away. And now he says, a new commandment I give to you. Underline that word new. We'll come back to it. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Here's what we're going to find next Sunday. Um, I'm not sure the disciples even heard that. 
because they're so hyper-focused on this comment that I'm going away. In fact, when we get to the next part of this section, Peter, Peter completely misses it. He's like, what do you mean you're going away? Right? Did, did you hear what I just said? Did you hear what I said about loving each other? Not yet. They'll get there, but not yet. So let me try to diagnose what Jesus is aiming at here. This command is the logical extension of what flows through every relationship that exists within the family of God, love. Everywhere you look in this family dynamic of God's family, there is this thing, love. Think about it. It starts way back before the world was even made, when the Father and the Son and the Spirit had this perfect love, right? And then in love, the Father sends his Son to earth to die as a ransom for sin. And because the Son loves the Father, he obeys his will perfectly. The Son shows his disciples in a very real way what it looks like to love And then he goes out and loves them in the highest sense, dying for them on the cross. And having paid that debt in love, he draws them to himself. He gives them the gift of faith. He justifies them and he adopts them into the family of God, which is marked by love. And then he sends us out into the world as his ambassadors to what? Love other people. And as we go, we make disciples along the way. And as we do that, we're commanded to love one another in the body of Christ. Love, love, and more love. It flows throughout the family of God from beginning to end. If you're found in Christ this morning, that's what your spiritual family is all about. Whether you know it or not, whether you practice it in the past or not, today can be a new day. We're about love. That's an amen moment. Now, we'll get to that new aspect in just a minute. But before we do, it's good for us to sort of reel back for a little bit and make sure that we all have the same baseline idea of what love is. Because the world's confused about this, right? You know, what is love? So let's talk about it. First, it's important to notice what Jesus says to his disciples here. He doesn't give them a suggestion about love or a good piece of advice about love. He commands it. This is a commandment from the very mouth of God the Son. It cannot be ignored. So newsflash for us, this means that loving others in the body, even here at Oak Hill, is not an optional thing. Uh Uh-oh. It's not an optional thing. It's not something that you can do if you feel like it or if you have the time for it or you have the energy for it. From Jesus' lips to your ears, this is a command to be obeyed. That's hard. But but that's, that's what's going on here. It's a command to be obeyed. I read a story about a pastor who one day he was teaching a Bible study And he looked out at this class and he said, so what do you guys do with the commandments of God? And this little old lady put her hand up and said, I underline them in blue. (laughs) Not exactly the answer he was looking for. (laughs) The point of the commandments in the Bible is that we take them seriously and seek to obey them, not just underline them in blue. We can all underline things in the Bible. That is not fulfilling the command. Now, in my opinion, the modern-day evangelical church has fallen woefully short in this. This is one of our biggest problems today in American society. Somehow in our day, we've come to believe, this is the process now of church life, that we shop around for a church that custom fits our needs, then we attend whenever we can, if nothing else comes up on the calendar, We walk in and we sort of half-heartedly sing worship songs along with everybody else. And then 
As the preacher drones on, we sort of half listen to him as well. We get served by the staff and the volunteers. We drink the coffee. We eat the snacks. We put our our kids in the children's program. We hang around the fringes of fellowship. We try to find a few people that we can say, oh, I connect with this person or I sort of feel comfortable talking to them. And then we attend whatever church events we see on the calendar that look enjoyable to us that maybe we think might be helpful to us. And at the end of the day, we lay our heads down on the pillow thinking, I'm living a faithful Christian life. Really? I mean, is that, is that the fulfillment of Jesus' command to love? That? We've settled for that in the evangelical church today. And it showed up in our lives and in our witness. That's what we've settled for. See, the problem we have is twofold. Number one, our understanding of love has been tainted by the fall, and then it's been further corrupted by all the cultural influences that we've allowed into the church and into our lives, and that's mixed up the definition of love. And then secondly, we're incredibly selfish creatures. I'm the first one to admit it. We just want to love ourselves more than we want to love other people. So we've got an inherent problem that that needs to be fixed if we're going to live out this command. We'll get to that later. But that's the problem we have. So let's start by pointing out the obvious. You've probably heard this said many times before, but this is a good day to to remind you. Biblical love often comes with feelings, but biblical love is not initiated by feelings or driven by feelings. That's important to know. This is where the enemy has been so successful at using the tools of the world to mess us up. He's the one who wants you to focus on how you feel about other people. And to gauge your love based on that. To let your feelings drive what you do for people or what you refuse to do for people. How you feel about them. So the enemy will whisper in your ear. You want to know what really love really is? Well, movies and TV shows will show you. Or those fictional books that you like to read, they'll show you what love is. Take a look at celebrity relationships. Swoon over images of romance. Look at unrestrained sexual passion. That's love, is what he'll say to you. And even as we try to push that out, the the more it crowds into our lives, the more we begin to sort of swallow that and make it part of our formula for what love is. The enemy will say, you know what, fall in love because he knows someday that that feeling of love is going to dissipate and then he'll say, well, you fell into love, so maybe you can fall out of love based on feelings. You know who you should love, Satan says? People who love you. They're the best people. Love the people who love you. Why would you you do anything for a person who doesn't do anything for you? Are you crazy? And we let that sink into our, our brains. Above all else, he will say, don't waste your time loving people you don't even like. Those people are meaningless. They don't bring anything to you. So why would you love them? Or this one, perhaps his most devious lie, you don't actually have to care for those people. What you should do is go ahead and serve them because it'll make you feel really good about yourself and bonus, you'll look really godly in front of other people. In other words, love yourself. Love yourself. The enemy's very, very clever. He's got us all mixed up about love. So we gotta get it straight. Biblical love, the the type that Jesus is commanding here, agape love, is at its core a commitment to every other person's highest good. Every other person's highest good. What's the highest good for all people? That 
more and more they'd be conformed to the image of Christ and that they would live a life that is glorifying to him. So that's our calling. That's our overall aim and how we function within the local church. We put every other member of the body ahead of ourselves and we seek their highest good. Imagine a church that was doing that all at one time. Every single member, putting every other member first and seeking their highest good. Now, how does that get fleshed out? In a whole bunch of ways. First and foremost, we have to commit to live life together with a sense of chesed. Thank you. <laughs> Gotta spit when you say it, right? That is the Hebrew word that we read in scripture for the type of steadfast loyalty and love and faithfulness that God shows to us. It's a very important word. He shows it to every man and woman who is adopted into his family. He shows them this covenant loyalty. That's the example we're to follow. We strive to love as God has loved us. That means we strive to serve, not to be served. That means we strive to fulfill all of our promises towards one another because God is always faithful to fulfill his promises to us. That means there's no room for selfishness in the body or apathy or laziness. We're called to devote whatever is necessary to see other people grow and mature in the faith, whether it's our time, it's our energy, whatever resources, we put others first and we seek their highest good. And it means we stay at it through thick and thin. We don't give up, even when it gets hard. See, God's chesed towards you and to me doesn't fluctuate based on how we're doing. He, he, he doesn't lessen in his loyalty and love and faithful to, to us based on how we're walking in our spiritual life. His love, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, they're not contingent upon our spiritual performance before him. He doesn't waver in his love towards us. That is our model. So if we don't feel like loving, we love. Even if we don't connect with a particular person, we love that person. Even if somebody has let us down in the past, we still love them. Even if we've been hurt by that person, we forgive and we love. Love, love, and more love. If we need to extend grace and forgiveness, we do so. Why? Because God has extended grace and forgiveness to us. It's really not simple. It's just really hard to do, right? It's, it's a simple formula. It's just hard to do. We're going to get to how we do that in a second. So at times, love is going to look like just plain old presence in somebody's life, compassionate care. Sometimes love is going to look like a prayer lifted up for them or a bit of wise counsel. Other times, it's a note of encouragement or bringing a meal over. Sometimes love is going to be a hard conversation and a gracious word of, of correction because that's the highest good for your brother or sister, that they be corrected. There's a million and one ways that we love. We just have to start obeying it. We just have to strive and seek to obey it. Is that making sense? Good. I mean, this is nothing new. You've heard this before, right? It's just a good reminder. All right, let's go back and answer the question now. In what sense is this a new command? Because Jesus used that word, right? Well, in Leviticus 19, the law said very clearly, love your neighbor as yourself. So that means that this command to love was already 1,500 plus years old when Jesus announced it in the upper room. So how is it new? Well, the answer is right there in what you might call the fine print of verse 34. Love as I have loved you, he said. Love as I have loved you. 
love your neighbor as yourself, it's a beautiful command, but it, you might be able to twist that meaning, right? And say, well, but Jesus says very specifically, love in the same way I've loved you. Now that means, don't just love according to, uh, to your personal definition of love. Don't love how you personally want to express your love because that's just loving yourself at the end of the day. Love according to the example that Jesus left for us. And remember, he said, as I washed your feet, so you should wash one another's feet. I've given you an example, he said, a pattern for you to follow. And that was so beautiful, right? So gracious on the Lord's part to give them this very obvious visible thing and say, see this? This is a good example. But listen, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Because he's going to go on and love them to the full extent when he goes to the cross. And that's where we see the sort of the, the full course of what it looks like to love as Jesus loves. I know we've read Philippians 2, I don't know how many times in this series. We just keep coming back to it because it's so perfect for this occasion. This is how Jesus wants you to love. Have this attitude in yourselves, Paul writes which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's your new standard. Love as I have loved you. So don't hold on to your rights. Stop it. Quit grasping on to your rights. Empty yourselves of your status or your ego, whatever's in the way. Empty yourself. Be humble. Take the role of a servant. Take the role of a servant. Say in your heart, I count everybody in this body more significant than me. That's what Philippians 2 means for us. So now that we've laid that out, what biblical love is, here's the really bad news. You can't do it. You can't do it, not in your own strength. Guys, this is why Peter failed. This is why we fail so often to live up to this standard because we're trying to do it on our own. Peter fell on his face because he tried to do it on his own. We'll get to Peter more next Sunday. But you have to know this. And I know you do know this. Peter was super committed to Jesus. He was, he was rock solid, wasn't he? Super loyal to Jesus. And yet, when the time of testing came and the pressure of darkness was put upon him, he folded like a cheap suit. <laughs> right? Why? Because he was counting on his natural human love to get him through. That's why. He thought the strength of his, his fleshly commitment to Jesus would carry him through that night. But as soon as he felt under threat, man, that was out the window. I don't even know the guy. Who's this Jesus? I don't even know him. Amazing, right? So if we're going to obey Jesus' command and love to the standard that he's given to us, we're going to need divine help. And this is so important. Now, I hate to jump ahead in the, in the Gospel of John. You know, I hate to do that because we're going to get there someday. Right, Adam? But in John 15, in about six months, yeah. In John 15, we read this. Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, I, also, I have also loved you. 
So catch this. You and I have been loved by God the Son just as God the Son has been loved by God the Father. Did you catch that? You and I have been loved by God the Son just as God the Son has been loved by God the Father. And then Jesus adds, now abide in my love. That's that family connection that I was trying to draw earlier, right? This love that extends throughout the family of God. The Father loves the Son, and now the Son says to you and I, abide in my love because that's what's going to empower you to then go out and love your brothers and sisters. It works its way through the whole family. This divine love flows down from heaven, runs through the whole family of God, from father to son to you, and then out to everybody else. That's the way it's designed. Now, question. There's no doubt about the first couple steps. God has loved the son. The son has loved you. Did it stop there? Have you not extended it to your brothers and sisters? Have you been the, the sort of the block there in the chain? Now, the love hasn't gone out from you. You've been loving yourselves within the body of Christ. Everything's been about you. But you haven't put others first. Are you enjoying the love of God but not extending it to others? Back to John 15. Listen to these well-known words. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in in me. Guys, this is the whole key to bearing spiritual fruit, and especially when it comes to love. Apart from a vibrant connection to Christ, you will not be able to love other people to the standard that Jesus has laid out if you're not connected to the vine. Now, there's good news here. Jesus has laid out this super high standard, but he hasn't left you alone to try to figure it out. He hasn't left you alone to try to do it on your own. He promises to grant you all the divine power you need to obey and fulfill what he's commanded. You have to abide in him. That's the key. If you operate out of your own strength, you'll either try and fail like Peter, or you won't try at all to love others, and that's just plain disobedience. You've got to abide in the vine. So if you've been in church for some time and you've been wondering why everybody talks about this loving each other, this is such a hard thing to do, the first step is to examine your walk with Christ. Are you connected to the vine? Is that a regular part of your life? That you're walking with Jesus connected to him. Is your walk with him dry right now? Is it non-existent? Be honest with yourself. Are you a fruitless branch because you're not in any way connected to the vine? you're not going to be able to love to the standard that Jesus lays out. It's okay to be honest about this. We've all been there. We've all gone through seasons of dryness where we're struggling to love people. What are you going to do about it? Today's a good day to, cor to correct that trajectory, to get back on the path. And if you need help with that, I'll say, like I said last week, just ask for help. There are disciples and mentors and elders in this church who'd be glad to sit down over coffee and talk to you about what it means to abide in the vine so that you can love others with this divine love. Amen? Wrapping up quickly, verse 35. This is a, such a well-known verse, right? By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have biblical love for one another. Not the fake stuff, the real one. That's when they'll know. So the world's going to know that you're a Christian not because you're just nice to them, Unbelievers can be nice. 
Not because you look a certain way or talk a certain way or you support a particular political figure or vote a certain way. Not even because you attend religious services on Sunday. That is not going to convince anybody. The world will know that you're a follower of Christ when they see how remarkably you love your brothers and sisters in the local church. When they see a type of love that looks different from anything that they experience in their world, something that is stunning and attractive, when they see a love that they can't understand, can't even fathom, and it makes them say, what is going on over there? But that's not a fleshly type of love. That's a divine love. It's got to be remarkable. Sadly, this has become really rare today in the church. It's more likely that when the world peeks into the church today, they don't see remarkable love. What they see is backbiting and grumbling. They see division and hypocrisy. They see more concern about politics than they see mercy and compassion in the church. And so it's no wonder that today sharing the gospel just seems more difficult than ever because of our reputation. And I think we've moved into a very challenging new time in American history where secularism is not just alive, but it is thriving and it is growing. And more and more every day, it's soundly rejecting a Christian worldview because of what they've seen in us. Very few people today believe, as our culture once did when I was young, that Christians lived a beautiful life, that Christians live a life of love and peace and joy. They don't see that anymore. They see that, that, that we don't have a great concern for, for our fellow man anymore. We seem to want to argue about everything. We want to fight about things. We want to go on, on social media and we want to attack people. So it has practical consequences. Now, whether that's statistically true or not, that view is becoming very common. In fact, the growing trend, I hate to say this, the growing trend is that a secular view is actually superior to historic Christianity. Many will say, you know what, secularism is more reasonable, more ethically sound, more loving. More loving. That's how confused people are out, out there. Doesn't make it true, of course, but there's no question that today we're fighting an uphill battle when we share our faith because of the reputation of the church. So what do we do about it? I, was, I just painted a really bleak picture, didn't I? What do we do about it? Every single one of us in this local church takes responsibility to live out this command. Starting today, to come back to John 13, to come back to first principles, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, recommit ourselves to obey the commandment of love that Jesus has given to us. At Oak Hill, that's where it has to start. Love one another as I have loved you. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for this beautiful command in Scripture. And Lord, I know that we have all fallen so short. Me included, Lord. We have fallen short of your glory. We have fallen short of the standard of love in which you've loved us. We confess that to you this morning, Lord. And we're not going to wallow in that shame now, Lord. We simply want to ask that your spirit would come and convict us of areas that we need to change and move us, Lord, towards maybe towards people that we haven't loved well in this body in the past and to, to do better, Lord, for your glory. But not in our own strength, Lord. Would your spirit come and give us that divine love that we need to love each other well. Thank you again for this story, God. Thank you for the example of, of Peter even and how he has failed, and yet we use him as an example of what, 
we need to correct in our lives. Lord, you are so gracious to give us these tangible examples for us to look at. Thank you for your word. Thank you for time together this morning. Thank you for a time to praise your name and song. And as we now enter back into that, Lord, may the the praises from our lips be authentic and real, not, not stapled on as fake fruit, Lord, but authentic and real from the depths of our heart. We love you, Lord. Help us to express that now, we pray in your name. Amen.